This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Kenil Lonzo. In this special edition of Generation Justice and in honor of Earth Day, we feature an Indigenous-led panel on climate justice. This panel was made possible by Climate Justice Alliance, a collaborative of community-based and movement support organizations which unites frontline communities for a scalable, socially and economically just solutions to climate change. This panel is led by Julia Bernal of Pueblo Action Alliance. Speakers include some of New Mexico's amazing organizers and leaders, Leona Morgan of Nuclear Issue Study Group, Juan Reynosa of the Southwest Organizing Project, Benishi Albert of the Indigenous Environmental Network, and Congresswoman Deb Holland. And stay tuned after the panel, when we will feature Reyes DeVore, co-founder, co-director, and community outreach manager for Pueblo Action Alliance. Reyes will speak about the work of protecting sacred land in New Mexico and the upcoming third annual Healing Circle on April 27th. Now, co-founder of Pueblo Action Alliance, Julia Bernal, begins the panel on climate justice. Good evening. Makawam. Shim. Means welcome. Welcome you all into our, our homes here in the Tiwa territory. Albuquerque used to be Tijuan territory. Tijuan is like Tiwa speaking people. Patush, thank you for acknowledging Sandia. Sandia, though, is a Spanish word. We're called Tuxoitui, and that means green reed place. We settled really close to the river, and we're also really close to the foothills. And that really short distance has an abundance of biodiversity. So I come from a very rich culture. We also have another name for our our Pueblo, and that's Nafi. And it's not because of all the winds that y'all were experiencing today. (laughs) It has to do with us being relocated many times. Our original Pueblos were scattered throughout this area, and my people found refuge actually in Hopi. Half of them went to Hopi, and half of them kind of settled along where Isleta and Sandia is. And sometime they came back. They came back to um, where we're settled now. And the reason why they call it Nafi, dusty place, is because of the tracks and the footprints that kicked up the dust on their way back home. And so we have this history embedded in our language of removal, but of resilience. We have been fighting colonial law, colonial jurisdiction for many, 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 many years. One of the first standoffs between the Spanish was in 1560. And it was my people with stones and sticks fighting against Spanish people, and also the indígena de México. And they were like, wait, we're both brown. (laughs) Why are we fighting against each other? And then that started the mixture of the cultures here. So we're all related somehow. But I just want to say thank you to CJA for allowing Pueblo Action Alliance to experience this because we're a small grassroots organization, but we have a lot of heart. And we do this work is because we have passion, we have care, we have the nurture, we have the motivation to continue protecting land, water, and air.
The reason why there's an environmental movement is because frontline communities are being impacted. I'm a young person, I'm 27 years old, and I've been learning a lot about what international and what spiritual solidarity mean. And I understand that because I'm rooted in a traditional system. The traditional system I'm rooted in comes from my people, comes from my clan. And the ceremonies, the songs, the dances, everything that we do and pray for isn't just for our communities. It's for the entire world. Inherently, as indigenous people, we understand that we have to have reciprocity between our mother earth and our five finger beings here. And so when we're talking about spiritual and international solidarity, we already do that on a ceremonial level, on a spiritual level, we are already doing that. But now we're transitioning into this modern day, modern time where we have to navigate through the systems that were never meant for us, the systems that were meant to exterminate us, assimilate us. And so look at us now, brown, black, beautiful, educated, and we're using that Western education to navigate through that system, to better our communities. That's the ultimate goal. It's not about us, the self and individual. It's about the people, nosotros gente. It's about our people. And we need to start seeing brown, black, beautiful women in these spaces so that way our daughters and our nieces can see them and be like, wow, I look like her. I can be like that. And she does it not for her, but for her people. And that's power, people power. And we have that. We inherently have that. When I was asked to moderate this panel, I, I, I just really wanted to speak from my heart because that's what leads me in this work. And my heart has my clan, my heart has my family, my heart has the water, the water has saved my life. And so with that, now it's time for me to learn from all of these amazing people in this fight for climate justice environmental justice, social justice, restorative justice. So sitting next to me is actually my cousin, <laughs> Benishi Albert. Um, we are Yuchi sisters, Yuchi with a Y. Um, and uh, I'm just blessed that um, we're, we're coming together um, on, in this work. And it's beautiful. Um, Benishi works with the Indigenous Environmental Network and originally is in Oklahoma, Yuchi and Anishinaabe. So everybody give it up for Benishi real quick. Okay, moving down the line, we have Leona Morgan in the house. She is the co-founder of Dene no, uh, no Nukes and also the co-founder of Nuclear Issues Study Group. Leona is Dene from Denete and she's gonna share her amazing work that she does because she's got heart too. <laughs> and then we have the wonderful Congresswoman Deb Holland from Laguna Pueblo. 
And just to, for you know, Deb, I voted for you. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> and then um, last we have Juan Reynosa with Swap. Swap in the house. Juan is Chicano. Juan is also our office mate. <laughs> we share office space. And just a shout out to Swap. Swap holds it down. They even gave us like a little office and we're like, thank you so much. <laughs> we're just going to get right into it. I know you all really want to hear what these wonderful people have to say. We're going to start off with Juan. Good evening, everyone. My name's Juan. I grew up in southeast New Mexico in an oil and gas town called Hobbs, New Mexico. So my living experience as a young person was breathing in a lot of smoke, refinery fumes, chemical factory fumes, seeing water contamination in neighborhoods um, where it got m uh, mothers of my friends sick. And just being able to look in your backyard and see a lot of the things that they're talking about on TV or in the books that I opened up in science class was really eye-opening for me. And as I've continued this journey of being an environmental justice organizer in New Mexico, I grew a big understanding that many, many people in New Mexico really had to deal with the same reality I had to growing up, and they continue to do that, which is what led me to do the work that I do. I have six nephews and two nieces in Hobbs who I care so deeply about, and this is the work that I do for them, our next generations. In regards to just how we lead this work, we always refer to the EJ principles and the HEMS principles of democratic organizing because that is just the roots of how we know we have to interact with impacted communities here in New Mexico. And so being able to travel up north to the Navajo Nation and talk to families who live in the shadow of the coal-fired power plants or around Navajo Mine, or going down to Mesquite, community members are living around uh, Helena Chemical Plant. It's really eye-opening to see that even though we have a lot of air blowing here and a lot of sun, we still are suffering from the plight of extractive industry. And so I'm just going to roll down a few issues that I've been working on. One of the ones that I, I care about that I know Leona will be a little bit more articulate on is the Holtec. So we definitely want to halt Holtec. They're trying to transport high-level nuclear waste across the country and deposit it above ground in canisters in my hometown of Hops. And obviously that takes a, you know, something of concern since my family lives there. But it's also the fact that we have the entire nuclear legacy here in, in New Mexico, right? From the mining of uranium, which has contaminated many communities, to the energy production by many of the labs. And now in my hometown, they have a nuclear enrichment plant and a processing plant there. We really have to be aware of, of the role nuclear is played in New Mexico. And also understand that as we come to these conversations around Green New Deals, that nuclear is a false solution. It has a lot of big implications that we don't want. But I'll let Leona, the expert, speak more eloquently about that one. <laughs> in general, we just want to be able to assist EJ communities and let them lead with their own self-determination, whether that be rural communities down south or up north, many of the urban communities that suffer from air and water pollution in urban centers like Albuquerque, to many of the colonias here, you know, where families are living with many times not running water, trying to get by even though they should have access to a lot of these things. One of the main issues that I've worked on for the past few years is around air quality. 
about five years ago, we led a air testing campaign that went with communities here in Albuquerque who were dealing with a lot of air quality issues from refineries, trains, cement factories, chemical plants, working with rural communities in southern New Mexico, working around their, the fertilizer plant that was letting a lot of chemical fumes there. To up north where a lot of the indigenous communities are dealing with the air quality issues from both the coal-fired power plant and the coal dust from the mining of the coal there. It's a hard fight because, as you know, New Mexico is very industry-ridden, but many of our communities bear the impact of the money-making practices that they do. Many people in Hobbs complain about the air quality, and oftentimes the rebuttal is that's the smell of money. But, you know, there's also many other smells associated with that, you know, illness, death. We have to do better than that. And so when I look at my community of Hobbs or many of these communities impacted by industries, of course, we want to be able to transition to better, cleaner, renewable energy. But we also have to look at the people who live there and know that we can't leave them out of the mix. Many of my family members work in that industry, and I would not want to see overnight their sustenance get shut down. Because, you know, even though at times we might look at the workers as adversarial, having conversations with many of them, they get it. Oftentimes, we're put in a tough position where we have to be able to support our families while knowing that there's a contradiction in that being a part of these industries. And so to me, it would feel great to see those same people producing clean energy and being proud of that work and not creating unhealthy situations for their families. In regards to water, uh, one of the biggest issues SWAP's taken on recently is Santolina. For those who don't know about that, it's a you know huge master plan for development on the West Mesa here. It's just another greedy plan where they want to come leverage tax dollars. But the more important thing is, is that if developed, they would be using 20 million gallons of water a day. We don't have that, right? In our arid desert, it's going to be either a choice of corporations coming in and using our water or us continuing to use them for our traditional practices that we have for many years now. We also have a big plume of jet fuel in our water here in Albuquerque. And that's a growing concern. And now we also just learned that Cannon Air Force Base has another, jet, another plume there from uh, flame retardants. And so the water is precious. And so we have to continue to look at that as an issue. And lastly, I'll just say that there's been a lot of talk around this Senate Bill 489 as something that could be an example of leading the country in a new way. But just to be quite frank, that bill didn't include a lot of the impacted communities' voices. It's also setting a precedent where nuclear can be used for a carbon-free future. And as I said before, that's a false solution. And so just to wrap up, if we want to keep continuing to pass policy like this, we have to take a step back, or at least the people who pass that bill, the big greens and others, um, they need to be able to take a step back and review the environmental justice principles and the HEMIS principles of democratic organizing and know that there's a firm reason why they're there. They have to respect the people who've been bearing the brunt of these industries all this time, and they are the solution, and they hold the answers for our future. Thank you, guys. Okay, so Juan talked about like the false solutions, right? Nuclear being a false solution. I think that's why it's really important that on a local level, we're paying attention to the bills that are getting pushed um, through like energy-wise, um, making sure that communities have autonomy over what their energy grid is going to look like in the future. Um, so 
Since we're on the topic of nuclear, I think it's only best that we go to Leona Morgan, and she's going to share her work, and I'm really looking forward to what she has to say, so give it up. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, thank you to everyone. Thank you for inviting me here to speak. I'm, I'm very honored to sit on this panel with everyone here, and and also um, just for allowing me to be in this space with you all. My name's Leona Morgan. I'm just gonna make a little disclaimer. I'm not a member of CJA, but I'm really happy to be here. And so um, I think it's really important that, um, and some of the stuff I wanna share really comes from years and years of, of work with my people and also going out there into the world dealing with this nuclear, we call it the nuclear beast. Um, but I'd first like to just introduce myself uh, traditionally. Really, I just also want to acknowledge some of my people who have helped me to be here today. I really began doing my work organizing at UNM in the Kiva Club. And through the Kiva Club, I gained access to, to this world of environmental justice and the work that all of us are doing. I was really fortunate that I was asked to work for the Sage Council. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on my, my co-panelists here that, uh, you know, some of my earliest trainers, training and all of the good stuff that I've learned as an indigenous organizer really came from Lori Wiaki, Sunny Wiaki. Pam Malone, and, and this wonderful person right here, Benicia Albert. And yeah, wow, you got, got some applause. So, so I also really want to acknowledge, you know, some of these things don't even exist anymore. I was really lucky that I was also part of the Southwest Network for Environmental and Economic Justice, and I was part of the Youth Leadership Development Campaign. And I was fortunate that there was these trainings for young brown people here in Albuquerque. And so some of my earliest colleagues, I mean, we've known each other for almost 15 years now. So I just wanted to acknowledge all of the good people who have allowed me to do the things that I am doing. I mean, first I acknowledge my parents, my clans, my ancestors, and of course these, these people here and some of my new colleagues that I work with are not here, that they all helped me to go into this, this area of work. And when I started in 2007, I was just, I, I didn't even know what a uranium mining was. It took me a year to understand this thing. We call it an extractive industry. We have all these technical names for it. You know, just to get straight to the point, it's, it's the rape of our mother earth. These things that happen to our earth, it's impacting us today. So I know BMWC would make the um, comparison of extracting coal as ripping out the liver of, of our mother earth. Some of our, our relatives up north in uh, Saskatchewan, I just want to share a quick little story. I'm Diné, and we have some relatives up there in northern Canada who are the Diné. And they have a story about uranium, that uranium actually has a lot to do with the weather and controls some of these systems, you know, in the universe. Uranium is one of the earliest elements that helped to form the Earth. And what they said is that if we disturb the uranium, that's what's causing these things that Western science calls climate change. So they've had these stories for so long. They've or they already knew these things just like us here. We, we have our stories that have taught us that, you know, we shouldn't do these things. 
So that's why after learning about uranium mining, I helped with the local community to successfully stop a in-situ leach uranium mine, which is basically mining in the water. Yeah, in 2014, we stopped this um, close to Gallup. And, and yeah, after we won, I was like, I'm not gonna fight this the rest of my life. I, you know, we, we, we stopped it, and then I moved on to some of the other work, which led to finding, founding Diné No Nukes, which actually, our first meeting for this was on February 14th, 2014. It so happens to be the same day of the big kitty litter fiasco at WIP. I don't know how many of you guys know about that, but that was a, a fire at a nuclear waste dump here in our state. And then Dineno Nukes also deals with this thing we call radiation monitoring projects. So I helped to uh, get these things into the hands of people in, in places impacted by ionizing radiation. So some of the groups I work with, Hall No, Don't Nuke the Climate, and now the um, Nuclear Issue Study Group, we're really tackling the entire nuclear fuel chain. And so I think it's really important that folks recognize uranium mining happens at least 70% of the time on indigenous lands worldwide. So we've been dealing with the front end of the nuclear fuel chain, and then now we're dealing with the back end of the nuclear fuel chain because in most communities, in, in most instances where they're trying to dump nuclear waste, it happens to be indigenous communities. Being here in New Mexico, we're not dealing with just, like, Juan got to it really quickly. The uranium mining, the weapons production, the enrichment, research that goes on here in town at Sandia National Labs. We have over 2,000 warheads stored here. Now they want to dump the nation's high-level nuclear waste on our state. That's all of the waste from all of the nuclear power plants. They want to bring it here to Juan's neighborhood. And that means transporting the most, most radioactive stuff over decades to New Mexico. And we're trying to stop this. They call it centralized interim storage. So Nuclear Issues Study Group, we're working on this issue with a national coalition of folks. It's a national issue, and it's also an international issue because there's really no place to put this stuff. It's going to be radioactive for millions of years. Nuclear Issues Study Group also works on this issue called mixed waste landfill. There's a dump here just, just outside of town. Technically, it's not in the city because it's on Kirtland Air Force Base. This is also an issue that affects indigenous peoples because there's a lot of radioactive waste that could impact not just our water, but the water of the Pueblo of Isleta. Juan brought up SB 489. So SB 489 is this bill. New Mexico is actually leading the country in really trying to get to 100% renewables. So we're one of three states that has language that is trying to move toward 100% renewables. And it's really important for folks to know that some states, some places, some countries classify nuclear energy as a renewable. And then there's also this loophole that nuclear is called zero carbon. But I want to assure you that in New Mexico, some folks already closed that loophole in 2005. We had passed in the state a renewable portfolio standard that clearly defines that nuclear is not a renewable. And that's been challenged. And that's, that's, that's been challenged because people want renewables. It's good business. But the thing about it is nuclear is so expensive. It's received the most in subsidies for any kind of energy form. It's received billions of dollars from the federal government to, to not just research, but to build and to bail out the nuclear industry. Going to the Green New Deal, there was originally some language, an explanatory memo that stated that nuclear would not be part of the Green New Deal, and that was quickly shot down because of that 
nuclear industry lobby. And so this is these are the this is the monster that we're up against. It's not just it's not just the weapons, it's not the energy, it's not the nuclear waste, but it's powerful people with deep pockets. I've been doing this work for almost 15 years now unpaid as an anti-nuclear activist. And so I will continue to, to do this work so that my work will not be controlled by anyone else. But this is something that's really important that I ask all of you, thanks. I ask all of you, especially the Climate Justice Alliance, all of you here in the decision-making um, body, that each of your organizations, wherever you are, that you always talk about nuclear and include it in your work, that you clearly make these statements when you're talking to your elected officials about solutions. Nuclear is a false solution, like Juan said. The International Atomic Energy Alliance has started a new campaign called Atoms for Climate. They used to have this thing called Atoms for Peace, talking about civil use of nuclear, that it can be safe as long as we don't make bombs, but now they have this new thing called Atoms for Climate. So we need to shut that down, and the only way we can do that is by working together. So I just wanted to say thank you again. You know, some of the work that I do dealing with uranium mining, we're trying to stop uranium transport. We want to clean up the over 15,000 abandoned uranium mines that were created by the United States in their energy in their weapons um, plan. We want to you know, stop making more nuclear waste by shutting down all the nuclear power plants. Um, we need to stop dumping radioactive waste on brown people and indigenous communities. And yeah, we need to do this not just for ourselves, but for our future generations, because the radioactivity is going to exist for way longer than any of us in this room, and way longer than any of the money that these companies are getting. And so the thing that's most important is that we need to protect our water, our air, our land, our people, our genetics. And yeah, so that's why I'm here, and I hope that all of you can help out in this work. And so I just want to say thank you again, and pass the mic on to Benishi here, so yeah. You are listening to Generation Justice, where tonight we feature an Indigenous-led panel on climate justice, Featuring Julia Bernal of Pueblo Action Alliance, speakers include Leona Morgan of the Nuclear Issue Study Group, Juan Reynosa of the Southwest Organizing Project, Benishi Albert of the Indigenous Environmental Network, and Congresswoman Deb Holland. Let's get back into the discussion. Thank you, Leona. And so our next speaker is the wonderful Benishi Albert. So give it up for Benishi and all of her amazing work that she's done, not with just IEN, but also the Native American Voters Alliance. Um, I'm on the board, so I got to hear about like their awesome like founding story, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm a part of this now. So anyway, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you for the honor to be here. I say honor because it's not just about being here on stage. I didn't realize until I was sitting here what an honor it is to sit with the women that are here. I didn't realize I would have an emotional response to that, right? So, <laughs> and that is, that is the idea that this work is about heart. It's about family, it's about community. No matter where we are, what age we are, where we are at in our knowledge or development, we open the door and we invite people in because we need people to hold this work. 
I was raised with the values of responsibility to community. My mother is in the room. My father has raised me with that value. And so when I started doing this work as a young person who came into this work straight out of high school and continued to do that work and to think about the idea of not as young people as future leaders, but as young people who are stakeholders and what we're dealing with now. So the idea that now I'm sitting up here with Leona, who came into the work of Sage Council and protecting sacred sites as a young person, now see Julia and, and the work of Public Action Alliance picking up work. This is a profound thing for me to sit here and be like, dang, this is badass. Anyway, okay, so back to my talking points. <laughs> so my name is Benicia Albert. I'm with the Indigenous Environmental Network. IEN is one of the sort of founders of Climate Justice Alliance. This has been a key part of our being and our existence and thinking about. Um, and so it's a really great honor to be up here. And IEN came together with this idea that came out of the Protecting Mother Earth Conference. The Protecting Mother Earth Gathering happened before even IEN was a concept, right? And those communities came together and started sharing story and started seeing the same corporations that they were dealing with and they didn't know because they were in isolation. When they came to that gathering, they started to see, hey, that same corporation that is selling you that ugly deal around landfills, they're the same corporation that's trying to sell that landfill to us too. The idea of we need to have a communication mechanism to share these stories, to share ideas, to start collaborating on strategies, that was the impetus of IEN. I went to that gathering as a young person a week out of high school. Here I am, 29, oh, I meant not say that long, but 29 <laughs> years later. <laughs> IEN is operated in the idea that indigenous communities need to be the ones to share and tell those stories and to create the space and mechanism for opening up the seats at the table where those people can be at and share those stories, both in movement spaces such as this, but in other spaces, in environmentals, larger mainstream environmental spaces where those voices need to be heard at the UN level, at the national level, at the local level. That's been the impetus of our work and the methodology. And in that work, the, the piece that I'm going to share is just to share about some larger context about Indian country in general and some trends that we're seeing and have been for some time, but particularly in this time period of the current administration that we're in. From the get-go, we saw this move and shift to deregulation. And what did that mean to Indian communities? It meant that there was some push away from policies, enforcement of policies like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, and sort of deprioritizing them in agencies which had direct effect on Indian communities, and including some of the policies that were around Indian communities being consulted and brought to the table to talk about different projects were happening. We have continued to see the shift in public lands for private development for development in oil and gas, for development in uranium, for development for liquid natural gas, like the deregulation of public lands, lands that were held in trust for Indian people being opened up for private development. That is actually something that is happening not only here in the US, but it's happening in Canada, it's happening in Mexico, it's happening in Brazil, it's happening in the global south. So this is not a trend that is unique to the US. This is a trend of the powers that want to stay in control, saying this is what we need, and we need your governments to do it for us. 
we're also seeing this trend, particularly post Standing Rock, this trend of punitive measures against dissent and protest. That's happening in states across the country. That is a direct push on our voices, the people in this room, our voices, those states who are doing that are saying, we don't want to hear you anymore. We don't want to hear you anymore. And now, because of the Green New Deal, we are also seeing states starting preemptive measures to say, not in our backyard, that that Green New Deal is going to happen. I've made my home here in New Mexico for 24 years. It will always have the biggest place in my heart. But my home home is in Oklahoma, and I recently left and moved back to Oklahoma. And I am now in the belly of the beast. I am in a squarely red state. I am in a state. The last governor declared a national day of prayer for oil fields. Oil fields. Google it. This is the context. They've taxed private homeowners cannot do solar in the community with, in their own home without being taxed. A lot of the most regressive laws were happening in Oklahoma before they started trending in other states. I had a whole other set of talking points to share with y'all, but today, Trump announced, he announced that he is approving the Keystone XL pipeline. That announcement was made today as an executive order. And he is basically stating that because he, as the president, is not a federal agency, he is not obligated to the federal laws and agencies. He's basically saying that the Clean Air Act, that all these environmental procedures, that it doesn't pertain to him. So again, even though we had a victory on Keystone Pipeline being shut down, this is the moving quicksand that we're always on as indigenous people that we have a victory and they come at us again, and they come at us again. And in the time when I went to that first gathering in 1990, to see that here in 2019, that we still have to deal with the same shit over and over. And it really is, like I feel like I'm in this constant state of pure anger, like we are not taking this anymore. And on the other hand, the absolute love that I have for the communities and the cultures that we all represent in here, and the livelihoods that we're trying to protect, the families that we're trying to protect, and the pure love and joy that I want our communities to continue to live. Like, that is what we're fighting for. That is what we're standing for. That is why we come to these gatherings and we share these stories. It's not so that we have to hear the stories sad and over and over again. It's so that we remember the love that we have for our homes and our peoples. And we remember that love and we come here and we say, all right, what's happening over there? What are y'all doing? Are you winning? Let us try that. Hey, can you share with that? Oh, that didn't work? All right, let us tell you this, that, that might work. That's why we come to these spaces. That's why organizations like CJA and alliances are here. It's so that we can come and share story, share strategy, share hope, and share love, and shut down the things that are harming our communities. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, gonna, I'm just gonna leave it at that. There, there is a statement from IEN um, we put that out, look it up on, online, but this should not be the conditions that we have anymore. This is our country, 
This is our community. This is our Turtle Island. This is our world. This is our air. This is us. This is us. This is ours. And we should not have to be fighting. I've been at this 29 years, and there are some things that I'm just tired of fighting about. I'm tired of still having to fight nuclear as some kind of magic energy source. I am still tired of fighting that people want to like pollute our neighborhoods. I mean, at some point, you treat people badly enough, and what you end up doing, when you treat people badly enough, you build and create a people who are no longer afraid of anything at all. Indigenous people, we have been treated so bad for so many centuries. There's not a whole lot that you can scare us with anymore. And so if you treat people bad enough for long enough, at some point they stand up and say, what you got? Because I ain't afraid anymore. And I'm so proud to be here with so many other people who stand up and are not afraid and do what they need to do. And I love y'all and I thank you for all being here and sharing. Yes. We're going to move on to Ms. Deb Holland. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I am so happy to be here. You know, people ask me a lot where I get my protectionist view of the environment, and it's just the way I was raised. My dad made sure that we were outdoors all the time. We would just go to the beach. He was a 30-year career Marine, so we moved back and forth, and I lived on in Southern California and lots of military bases there and in Virginia. And sometimes we would just go to the beach and walk. I was a kid then. It seemed like we walked for 10 miles. We probably didn't walk for 10 miles, but it seemed like 10 miles when you're a kid. And just walking and saying nothing and listening to the waves and feeling the sand on your feet. And it's sort of that kind of solace that you find when you're up in the mountains or on the beach or doing something in nature. But that was the way I was raised. When I got sent to the Southwest to stay with my grandparents during the summers, I would go down to the field with my grandfather and tend to his cornfield picking the worms off of the ears of corn because he didn't use pesticides. He probably didn't have money to purchase pesticides back then. Little did we know how lucky he was, <laughs> right? That, that he did things the old-fashioned way. And at the end of a long day of hoeing weeds and tending to the fields, we'd eat apricots in the shade of one of his fruit trees and just listen to the quiet in the desert. And that was magical to me. So naturally, I'm an adult now, and I, I want everyone to experience what I did as a kid. And that's why I feel so passionate about protecting our environment, because I think we need to save it for future generations. So in Congress, we're working hard. There's a lot of passionate people about the environment in the House right now, because we all got elected this past election. Yes. And y'all should watch some of the committee hearings on C-SPAN once in a while. I have amazing colleagues in Congress right now who want to protect our environment, who want to change the way people look at things and change the way Congress works about how we think about those things. 
I'm on the Natural Resources Committee. The first three committee hearings we had were all about climate change. The climate change hearing hadn't happened in the House for 10 years. Getting some tribal folks at the table to talk about how this administration is whacking off big swaths of national parks and public lands. And I realize that I take your point and respect it. However, right now, it's either we keep our public lands or they sell them off to the oil, the fossil fuel industry so they can drill on it. So I feel like we need to protect it now as federal land or whatever land it is and fight off the fossil fuel industry from being able to buy up parcels of it so they can drill. So there's a lot of work to do and we're, we're, we're doing as best we can. I'm proud to say that on March 27th, House Democrats introduced H.R. 9, the Climate Action Now Act, which prevents the use of federal funds to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. The Senate held a vote on the Green New Deal. You probably know about this. It was very disingenuous, wasn't it? We're, you know, we're still talking about the Green New Deal. I'm a co-signer on the Green New Deal resolution. There's a lot of work that's going to go into that. But I'm proud to, to co-sponsor that with AOC and other Democrats. But the Green New Deal resolution has specific language about promoting justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. This is very important to all of us in this room, I know that. As the Green New Deal develops, we need to consult and obtain prior and informed consent of indigenous people for all the decisions that affect them and their traditional territories. With me being there, I'm always, always working hard to make sure that we have Native folks at the table talking about these things. When I ran for this seat, I didn't really run on the fact that I would be the first Native American woman, but after a while, like, people wanted to talk about that. So my answer was, that's not why I'm running, it's who I am. And I can't represent anyone's tribe. I can't even represent my own tribe. But I can be a voice and use the perspective that I was raised with by my parents and my grandparents. And I can make sure that Native folks are at the table to speak on their own so that their voices can be heard. Because that is more important than anything. And in the meantime, we're working hard to do some other things as well. Now, some of you might know that I came to this job through organizing. I'm an organizer. I worked in Indian country for close to 20 years because I felt it was extremely important that Native people had a voice in who their elected officials are. And that is the only way we get people in office who care about the things that we care about. So it is of utmost importance that every single one of you are talking about this upcoming election that you're making sure that people register to vote. It couldn't be easier now. You can go online and register to vote. If you know any young people, if they will be 18 by primary election or the general election, they can register to vote. We need every single person voting in this country 
Because if we had that, we would not have the president we have right now in the White House. So I'm urging every single one of you, this is political. And the trouble we're having right now, it's because we have people in office who want to protect the folks who are making money off of our environment, off of the degradation of our environment, and that needs to stop. We need people in office who care. We need people in office who know how to get things done. I want to make sure that every single one of you are clear in what your charge is between now and November of 2020. It is to make sure that every single person in our community gets out, registers and gets out to vote because we have to get folks in office who will do something about climate change, about our protecting our environment. So thank you all. Awesome. Yeah, give it up for our panelists. With that, let's continue to like have each other's back on a federal level, on a grassroots level. Let's have each other's back because it's for the people. It's for us and all of us working collectively together on the ground or at the Capitol. So again, give it up for our panelists, all of the amazing work that they do for their communities, for us. Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you to all of our speakers for the work that you are doing to protect New Mexico and our future. Your advocacy for the protection of the land is very important and inspiring, especially now when so much harm is being done to the earth. And thank you to the Climate Justice Alliance for organizing this panel. Reyes Javor is an enrolled member at Jemez Pueblo, but also has lineage to Laguna Pueblo and Diné Nation. She is co-director and community outreach manager at Pueblo Action Alliance, where she was one of the original co-founders. Reyes has a degree in early childhood multicultural education and background in working with children and families on child development to help break cycles of trauma within families. She is a mother to an 11-year-old son who ultimately drives her compassion to continue this life work. Speaking with her about Pueblo Action Alliance's work and upcoming third annual healing circle is GJ Youth Coordinator Kateri Zuni. This is Kateri Zuni with Generation Justice, and right now I have the pleasure of speaking with Reyes DeVore of the Pueblo Action Alliance. Reyes, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you for having me here with you today. And will you share more about yourself, please? My name is Reyes Devore de Noa. Um, I am from the Pueblo of Jemez. I am a mother. I wear many hats within the community, but right now with Pueblo Action Alliance, I am serving as the co-director and the community outreach manager. Will you tell us more about the work and the mission of Pueblo Action Alliance? Yeah, Pueblo Action Alliance is actually going on just over two years now of the organization just really transforming and transitioning. It was actually founded by women from the Pueblo of Hamas, and that was when we all felt the calling to go to Standing Rock and stand with our relatives to help them protect water and 
since then, it's definitely transitioned into making sure that we're bringing that same work, that same fight and resistance to protect our communities and our resources that we have here in our state and our public communities, making sure that those sacred sites and air, land and water are being protected as well. So our overall mission is to promote cultural sustainability by addressing environmental and social impacts of our Indigenous communities. So right now, some of those focuses that we have are like a lot of anti-fracking campaigns, a lot of protection of the greater Chaco region, because as Pueblo people, we have ancestral lineage to that space, and we know that it's a, it's not just a World Heritage Site, as it's being referred to. It is a place where our ancestors once lived and thrived. But not only that, there are a lot of Diné communities that live in that surrounding area, so they are facing severe health impacts, not just to the health of their bodies, but to the land and the air up there. And so we built a lot of really good connections and relationships with a lot of the Tri-Chapter House communities that are out there in the area. And we're very thankful that they have welcomed us as a public-centric organization to be a part of that and spreading the message about how the greater Chaco region is under attack. And when I say greater Chaco region, the reason we say that is, again, because it's not just a site what's happening is bigger than that. There's so much more than the site that needs to be protected. There's a lot of spiritual roads and living communities. You have children and elders that are there that we want to make sure that we're providing and showcasing our solidarity with them. Tell me about how you see the connection between the land and healing ourselves. There is a huge connection between the land and healing ourselves because what we see happening to the land eventually happens to our bodies. And we know that there is a disconnect that is happening and that will continue to happen when we're not protecting the land. Our life ways, especially as public people, our songs and our dances and all of that is about that is about like how we gave back to the land and how we were always making sure that we're protecting those life ways and therefore what does happen to the land definitely impacts our bodies mentally physically spiritually and emotionally and there is a resiliency within us but also there's waves of intergenerational trauma within that so it's a really important that we continue to combat that trauma with different aspects of healing within that work because many of us are out there fighting systemic racism, fighting to change the narratives of who we are, trying to center the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, you name it, we have Indigenous people trying to fight for us to be seen, to be heard, to, to be respected, but within that, our bodies get very tired. And we are often very exhausted and we know that this work is taxing on our bodies. So continuously incorporating different elements of healing is very important. Great. Thank you. And I think that's a great segue into the upcoming third annual healing circle that you're about to host. Tell us about that event. The third annual healing circle, we're pretty excited about that. The first one actually came about because we had a lot of 
Pueblo people who sacrificed a lot of their time and their energy and their and their bodies to go and protect the water up there. And we saw that they were coming back with PTSD and a lot of them were also in becoming incarcerated and getting charged. And that hurt a lot of us to see that even though Standing Rock did awaken a lot of people to continuously fight, it did bring a lot of trauma and there's still a lot of trauma from that. So our first healing circle was to to provide a space for them to have Acu detox, to have indigenous foods to nourish their body, to have different workshops of discussions being held by other indigenous organizations about how to continue to take care of themselves and with music and with art. And we offer those different elements each year throughout our gathering because we know that just offering those different elements of healing can help lead others down the path of bettering themselves, coming back to a place where they feel centered again. We definitely don't self-proclaim ourselves as healers. People people may especially know that we, we don't do that, but we can create a space. We can create a sense of community where we're providing all these different aspects so that way people can become empowered and they can have a sense of resiliency. So this year... Our third annual healing circle is going to be on Saturday, April 27th at El Shante Casa de Cultura, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year it's actually going to be centered on the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. And one of the reasons why we really wanted to center that on this year's theme was to make sure that we're spreading awareness because we're seeing that there is an epidemic happening. It is a crisis, but lots of people are kind of wondering and kind of going back and forth of, well, how can I take action? How, mm-hmm. how can I help? And we also felt, well, we can help in providing more awareness right now. We can have people come in and share some workshops about some of the reasons that are behind missing and murdered indigenous women, which the number one is sex trafficking. This healing circle is during Gathering of Nations weekend, and the reason why we definitely continue to consistently host it during that weekend is that that weekend in particular brings a lot of sex trafficking into Albuquerque Mm -hmm. on top of the rate of violence that is inflicted upon our women. Albuquerque sits in the top three of missing and murdered indigenous women. And that number is still not accurate today because there's underreporting happening for many different reasons. And so we want to just make sure that we're, again, providing a space for all of our people to come in and to enjoy the Acu Detox, to listen to workshops, to nourish themselves with indigenous foods, because we know that that food nourishes our body. Every time we get to go back home and have some either Indian tea or blue corn mush, it always feels good. It's like it's good medicine for our bodies. What are some of the particular parts about the event that you're excited about? This year, we're really excited to have our food being sourced from Red Willow Farm in Taos Pueblo. We're really happy that all of our food is going to be sourced from them and that we'll be supporting another group of women that are really combat food sovereignty and really trying to educate the community there. So we're glad that we're able to bring them down to Albuquerque and share what they're doing and share their food. 
I'm also pretty excited to have some of the artists. We're going to have Clara Natanaba from the Santa Fe area. She's a Dene sister who created an original song to honor missing and murdered indigenous women. So that's going to be the first time that she'll ever perform that live for the community. So we're pretty excited to have her join us. That's cool. Thank you so much. Who's welcome to attend? So what's really unique about our event is that it's an intergenerational event, which means that it is for all ages. It's for children. It's for our elders. And it is a drug and alcohol free space. It is a space for indigenous people, but is also open to other non-indigenous allies that want to also be there in the space. We do welcome them there because, again, we are spreading awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women. So we want to amplify that as much as we can so that way people are informed and that way our community members are also informed about that as well. And where can people go to find more information about not only this event coming up, but also the Pueblo Action Alliance and your work? So people can follow us on Facebook They can follow us on Instagram, and we actually also have a website, publicactionalliance.org. And there you'll also find our Cultivating Indigenous Resistance Workshop. There's so many articles, so many things that are being shared and going through our social media pages that it's a lot to take in, and it's a lot to really absorb. And you're also... Hearing about the Bureau of Land Management, you're hearing about EPA and all these extractive industries and federal entities that we're facing. But our grandmas on the reservations don't know that. Our our aunties, my nieces and my nephews. So we were really trying to make sure that we're investing in making that information accessible. So on our website, you'll find more information about all of those workshops but also just kind of learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're doing and where we're going and yeah I think that that's such an important thing to do is to create access and just digestibility for the information that you're talking about thank you for that that's that's an excellent resource to know about is there anything else that you would like to add I would just like to Thank you for all the people who have definitely helped in supporting the work that we've been doing along the way. It's just really incredible to see the outreach that we have seen and just kind of looking back about the way that we are building this organization. And essentially, we want to be able to build it and frame it in a way where one day we'll be able to pass it on right now. As individuals, as my team, Julia and Sheldon, we are making sure that we are building this in a way and providing a foundation so that way we know that we can just pass it on because we're fighting for this generation now and the next generation. But we want to be able to call upon youth and make it intergenerational so that way it can continue to make waves Well, Reyes, thank you so much for joining me here at Generation Justice. Thank you for all of the work that you and Julia and Sheldon are doing for our Pueblo communities and also for the greater Indigenous community. I really appreciate it. For Generation Justice, I'm Kateri Zuni.
Reyes, thank you so much for the work that you are doing with Pueblo Action Alliance. It's so awesome that you are able to create a space for Indigenous people to heal and recharge while discussing important issues in our community. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of Indigenous Climate Resistance. We'd like to thank our guests, Julia Bernal, Leona Morgan, Juan Reynosa, Benicia Albert, Congresswoman Deb Holland, and Reyes DeVore. And we want to give a shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Kolonama Health Foundation. And of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by POD, and coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Generation Justice would like to remind you that this program was recorded on Indigenous land. I'm Kenya Alonso. Thank you. Alakwa. <laughs>